you know, a lot of people have said that I chose the Honda engine specifically because it would rile people up and cause controversy and what have you. But to anybody that's been willing to engage in the conversation with me about it, I've I've genuinely challenged them, bring a better engine option to the table because I don't think that there is one. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're chatting with Mike Burrows from Stanceworks. Now, Stanceworks is a blog that I've personally followed for years, and this, understandably by its name, was kind of born out of the stance movement that we've seen kind of maybe drift away a little bit over the last few years. But what Mike's managed to do is take his popularity from his original blog, and he's actually made a full career out of this now with his Stanceworks YouTube channel. And Mike's really well known across the internet for some pretty crazy builds and in particular back in his Stanceworks blog days he was well known for his BMW uh, Rusty Slammington. Uh, Go Google that, you can have a look. Obviously we can't show you photos because it's a podcast. More recently though he is again at it and breaking the internet with a absolutely incredible Ferrari 308 Time Attack build. And just to irritate the Ferrari purists out there, he's gone somewhat non-conventional, I guess we could say, with the engine choice. He is swapping in a 1200 horsepower turbocharged K20. So yeah, it's uh, something a little bit different with the prancing horse badge on the front. One of the big takeaways from this interview I found though was the way that Mike really has a never say no attitude. He is essentially self-taught in everything he's doing from the build of these cars, initially relying on friends and professional workshops for the likes of the fabrication work. Now he's stuck in and taught himself how to MIG weld, how to TIG weld, how to use the likes of Fusion 360 to design and mock up parts and I think that should be an inspiration inspiration to all of you out there who are listening in. Maybe you're uh, dealing with a build in your back shed or workshop and you don't have those skills right now. Just understand that these skills are all totally things that you can learn and with the availability of information right now, it's never been a better time to get stuck in and upskill, which is a perfect time to talk about High Performance Academy. Obviously, I need to talk about myself a little bit here. And for those who aren't really aware of what High Performance Academy is, we are an online training school. We specialise in teaching a wide range of topics, including engine tuning, engine building, wiring. Relevant to today's topic, though, we have also branched out and we teach some basic fabrication skills. Specifically relevant to our topic today, our fabrication fundamentals course and our practical motorsport TIG welding courses may be of interest to some of our listeners. Our Fabrication Fundamentals course, as its name implies, teaches you the fundamentals behind motorsport fabrication and it takes a lot of the uh, black magic, I think, out of what a lot of people think fabrication is. You'll see that it's actually not that tricky and you don't need to spend uh, a huge amount of money on tools to get stuck in and get started. This gives you the freedom to basically design and make parts for your car exactly 
exactly how you want and it can actually save you a huge amount of money over using a professional fabrication shop. This of course then brings us to TIG welding which is the welding process of choice that we see usually in motorsport. It's not the only option but definitely gives us a huge amount of control over the weld and again this is an area where it can be a little bit tricky for enthusiasts to get stuck in and learn. That's what our practical TIG welding course is all about. We even teach you a simple six step process that will get you up and running in no time. You can apply that irrespective of what you're welding whether it's mild steel, chrome oily, uh, even titanium and aluminium, absolutely 100% applicable and we've also got a nice section in there with some material specific setups and skills so you can get your welder set up and ready to go and lay down some nice welds right off the bat. Now if you are interested in any of those courses we'll drop a link to them in the show notes. You can also check out hpacademy.com forward slash courses for a full list of our courses and as a podcast listener you can use the coupon code podcast 75 that's going to get you 75 bucks off the purchase of your very first HPA course. All right, though, enough with our introduction. Let's jump into our interview now. All right, welcome along to the podcast, Mike. Great to have you join us today. And I just wanted to get a sense of your background and how you got interested in cars and how you started modifying cars as, as a first place to sort of uh, kick off today. Sure. No, it's it's kind of funny. My my background in cars isn't one that goes all the way through my early childhood. I mean, my dad's a car guy, so is my stepfather, but cars weren't really a huge interest until, you know, I got pretty close to driving, maybe, you know, 14, 15, 16 around that age and I think, you know, as every uh 15-year-old at the time wanted the first thing I wanted was a Honda Civic, of course. Um and it's it's kind of just, you know, started picking up automotive magazines and trying to absorb as much automotive culture as I could, diving into automotive forums, you name it. And here we are way too long later. And uh, it's it's eat, sleep and breathe cars. <laughs> it's funny. It seems like every guest I have on this podcast, the the Honda theme just keeps on coming up, which is Interesting. I mean, it does say it does say a lot for the Honda brand. Um, I'm not bagging it. It is a, a pretty cost-effective uh, platform to get started on for an enthusiast who doesn't perhaps have a, a massive budget. So interesting that that just just keeps uh, coming up as a repetitive theme. And in, in terms of the the skill sets that that you sort of developed. Well, even the skill sets that you you have now, could you kind of give us a sense of what you feel you're strongest with, whether that be fabrication, just general mechanical skills, engine building, CAD, what are those skills and kind of how did you develop those? (laughs) I guess realistically, I guess I would say my my strongest suit is fabrication, but I wouldn't call myself a great fabricator. It, It seems like a lot of the guys that I know and try to surround myself with are leagues better than I am. Um, and I think that goes for most of my talents, but I, I try to dive into anything. Uh, I kind of have a philosophy that says if somebody else can do something, then chances are I can learn to do it too. It doesn't mean I can do it as well, uh, or that it won't take a long time to become proficient at it, but there's nothing stopping you from learning quite literally anything. Um, and so kind of touching upon, for example, engine building, that's not something that I have ever done. Uh, I, I've, you know, replaced a cylinder head on a car or what have you, but I've never dove into the fine details of engine building, but it's something that I want to learn. I know I'm capable of. I'll get there at some point. It's part of an ever growing skill set. 
Um, but as far as kind of where my skill set lies, I try to branch out. I try to do everything. Um, I'm not interested in doing body work. That's the one place I don't have, have an interest in going. I'll leave the, the paint and the, and the Bondo to someone else, but, uh, everything from, you know, chassis fabrication and suspension dynamics, you know, general mechanic problem solving, um, like you said, CAD work, I really wanted to try designing a full chassis in CAD soon and, and perhaps use like a full CNC, uh, you know, tubing bender and notcher and basically have a full chassis show up and get to put that together versus hand making it like I've done in the past. Um, I'm always trying to improve every skill set I can conjure up, you know, it's good to have a big toolbox. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to, to sort of dive back into there. And I mean, I think one of the the, the points you've made there is uh, it's you, you're you, you're able to essentially learn anything, and I think that's something that those listening to the podcast maybe who have a project car that they're working on, I think that's a really valuable takeaway. It's very easy to sort of consider that something is too hard to do, and I mean, a lot of that is why High Performance Academy was founded in the first place uh, through my old workshop. We used to do a lot of jobs on project cars for customers that they were scared of doing, and the two that that stick in my mind was always uh, the wiring harness and the uh, engine building. And, and it seems like those two were were really big major stumbling blocks for a lot of uh, really capable enthusiasts who essentially were prepared to tackle any other job on on their car. And then these two sort of topics, oh, tuning as well, I guess, goes along with that. They they needed to outwork that. And I guess from your perspective, when you're looking at these project cars that you've been involved with over the years, what was it that made you sort of decide internally, like, no, I'm, I'm not going to outwork this to a fab shop. This is something I'm going to just take on myself. Was it a, a case of having more control over the project and the finished result or was it cost saving or time or just uh, convenience? You know, honestly, I've never really considered what the catalyst for that is, but thinking back on it, I can, I can identify a moment. It was honestly probably when I moved uh, to California, I moved to California in 2011 uh, and prior to that, I mean, I knew how to do like the basics of MIG welding and I had done, you know, I put a 2JZ or 1JZ into my BMW, um, you know, in my tiny garage at my college rental house and what have you. But anything that really got into major fabrication, I had turned to uh, kind of a friend of mine for. And when I moved away, I lost that access. I didn't have that tool in my toolbox anymore. And I said, well... If I want to keep doing this, I've got to learn to do it. So I went out and I bought my own MIG welder and and I dove headfirst into a project that built a 1928 Model A with a BMW V8 in it as kind of this, I'm going to learn to fabricate. I'm going to learn to build a chassis. I'm going to learn how to do all of this kind of relatively basic stuff and put a relatively basic vehicle on the road that I can say I built that from the ground up myself. Uh, and similar situations, even when it comes to wiring, I had had a, a buddy fly out and wire that one JZ into the BMW for me, although I had done kind of the fabrication to put it in. And then once he had flown back to California, I melted that wiring harness to the ground by putting a relay in the wrong way. And suddenly here I was faced, I've got to rewire this whole engine if I want my car to run again. Uh, And that's not to say I didn't have help along the way. I called him up and said, hey, you got to give me the basics and walk me through this. I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, But 
it's it's all, I guess, a result of circumstance. Once you have to learn to do something on your own, you dive in and do it. And kind of my latest version of that is I had never learned to TIG weld uh, because I had had friends around that could do it for me. My former business partner, Riley, uh, could TIG weld anything. He's a phenomenal fabricator and welder. But as soon as he moved to Sacramento, I had to figure it out for myself. I had to say, all right, if I ever want to stick aluminum together, I've got to do it. And I think a lot can be said for necessity driving the choices we make. But I, what I, what I think, there's, there's two takeaways I want to really talk about here. The first is that I believe everything that you've just talked about there from TIG welding and MIG welding, basic fabrication in general, uh, wiring, even the engine building. I mean, yes, there's a specific skill set that goes along with each of those and we need to understand and, and learn that skill set. But I mean, we live in a time now where access to the information, solid information in a variety of forms has never been more accessible. And I, I genuinely believe that any enthusiast out there who's just got a little bit of patience and an eye for detail can learn these skills. The other aspect that, that is important to understand here as well is you have to weigh up when you're deciding which direction to go with building project cars. On face value, going out and purchasing a brand new TIG welder, that cost could definitely pay for a reasonable number of hours of professional fabrication outwork. But once you've got that TIG welder, that tool is going to be a quality tool that will last you a lifetime and that's going to save you tens of thousands of dollars over the course of your life if you're obviously assuming you're going to continue to be tinkering with cars, which it's a sickness. So most of us are kind kind of stuck with that now and um, you know, those are things I think people need to really consider and weigh up when they're deciding which path to go down. There's no right or wrong answer there, it's not for everyone, uh, but I, I think a lot of people are unnecessary put off that direction. But, but I digress, I, I kind of wanted to come back a little bit and talk about the stance movement, uh, which is, I, I, I'm assuming, just from my knowledge of you and StanceWorks, um, there's, there's probably a hint in the name there, uh, that's where you really sort of became very well known. So for those who've maybe been hiding under a rock and really never lived through that or, or heard the term stance, what, what are we talking about here? Uh, you know, there's a lot of different definitions to what, you know, stance might be depending on who you ask. If you're going to ask me, I think that every car has a presence to it. And I think that stance and presence can be synonymous. A lot of that does come down to ultimately wheel and tire fitment. You know, if I think all the way back to my first ever project, the E36 that I still have today, I remember I squeezed 255s on the back of it and posted it up on the BMW forums, and people were like, man, that car has stance to it. And it's like, what does that mean? But you, you kind of understand it. And taking that and running with it and looking at kind of where the quote-unquote stance culture took things, um, I love the creative aspect of it. I love the embracing of cars uh, and their aesthetics of it. A lot of the community really took things, I think, way too far and started just building cars that were completely useless and what have you. But um, ultimately, uh, you know, what stance is, is I think, you know, it's a celebration of of cars in an aesthetic way. It's it's a it's a an attention focus on what cars can represent as more of an art form as opposed to a, you know, functional piece. 
Yeah, and one one of the ways I I sort of see it is, you know, we're, we're dealing with a car that in most instances we probably have a, a chassis that's very common, and as enthusiasts, we're always looking for ways to stand out a little bit from the crowd and individualise our, our cars. And I mean, that's the great thing about being an automotive enthusiast. We've got a, a range of ways we can do that. But the the arguably one of the easiest and most obvious is with that that wheel and tyre choice. And you know that that I, I think still to this day is exactly the same situation. We're, we're fortunate to have a, a huge range of, of aftermarket wheel manufacturers out there making some amazing products. And as well now, we've got a lot of, of manufacturers offering you know, the ability to customise the, the offset to really get the exact fitment that you need for a particular car, which I think it's another thing I sort of saw come in with, uh, with that stunts uh, movement was the, <laughs> the room to, uh, to fender clearance, usually pretty arguably uh, minimal. Uh, but you know, that, that's sort of a, a very easy way for us to stand out from the crowd. It, it does, however, kind of bring into this argument of, of form versus function. And there's, there's you know, no kind of right or wrong path in modifying a car. I mean, it is, as I mentioned, an individual aspect in how you want to kind of uh, make your car your own. Uh, I definitely am firmly on the side of balancing that form versus function. I, I don't really get a lot of enjoyment uh, or I don't see a lot of interest in, in cars running around with sort of 18 degrees of negative camber uh, that, are, that are basically dragging the chassis rails on the ground as they drive around the car park. That That's kind of not for me. Uh, what's your sort of take on that balance between form and function? You know, I think form and function both have their place. I love function. I love fast cars. I love cars that are designed to do a very specific thing and to go out and use them for that, whether it's a drag car, a track car, a time attack car, what have you. Um, on the you know form side of things, I think as car enthusiasts, we've all looked at a car and said, that car is gorgeous. That of course is subjective entirely. Some of us may look at, you know, a, a vintage, curvy, swoopy, you know, land yacht of a car and say, that's beautiful. It's not going to do anything remarkably well other than look great and maybe be comfortable. Who knows? Some of us may look at, you know, the latest and greatest, uh, you know, Le Mans prototype car and say, that's gorgeous. And it's designed to do a handful of things very specifically. It is form following function. Um, but I think that subjectivity there is part of what makes it fun and interesting and creates, you know, a bit of diversity. As far as the importance of form versus function, you know, I've I've always really understood how certain car guys would say, I just don't get why you would, you know, slam your car, make it handle poorly, whatever. That that, that makes total sense. Those are very valid criticisms. Why would anybody do that? Um, and my my counter example that I've used in the past is comparing it to a set of high heel shoes. Um, are they functional? No, they're not. They're meant specifically for an aesthetic purpose and they can make the wearer look fantastic. It goes with an outfit. They have or formality to them on occasion, you know, what have you. But 
you can't run in them. You can't do any shoe specific job in them. They're completely functionalless outside of meeting the bare requirements of being a shoe. But I think we all agree that it can be nice to see them. They have a certain purpose to them. And so this is kind of that same same idea, right? It's okay to focus on the aesthetics or the um, overall, let's use the term fashion of a car. Everybody finds their own enjoyment out of what a car can bring them. For some people, it's strictly performance. For other people, it's strictly, uh, you know, a a visual excitement, so to speak. That's totally reasonable, Mike. And uh, your analogy of the high heels is actually (laughs) an excellent way of... uh, of really comparing that, um, I'm not advocating uh, wearing high heels, maybe for males. Uh, I, I think that's maybe a touch too far. But um, yeah, I, I get that. Uh, there's no arguing that um, the practicality of a, of a high heel is, is questionable. Um, I guess from my own personal aspect, I, I've sort of always come from the, the performance first aspect, which is why I sort of just mentioned that sort of sure. you know, huge amounts of negative camber. For me, I look at that and like, well, you know, uh, a tenth of the tires touching the ground, that, that's, that's a negative in terms of performance. But I, I also accept that, as, as I mentioned, uh, it, it is an individual aspect. So just because I don't personally get that or that's not something that I would like to do to my car, uh, I'm not here to say that that's, uh, that's also wrong. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it just comes down to that individuality. By all means, feel free to say that it's wrong, though. It's, 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 all, it's all fun, right? We're all allowed to have our opinions. And- yeah. And uh, I'm not going to fault anybody for for having opinions. I've got plenty of strong ones of my own when it comes to cars. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what keeps the whole uh, automotive industry sort of fired up as well, particularly uh, the opinions that we see on the internet forums or Facebook groups. Always makes for some heated debate, which which is okay as long as it's uh, as it's kept uh, clean and friendly, which is, which is obviously pretty important. Now, just as quickly as we sort of saw that that stance uh, movement sort of rise up and become super popular, uh, I think it's probably reasonable to say it it has dropped from popularity a a little bit. Do you think that read on it's correct? Yeah, I think think a really fair way to put it is that um, stance as some form of like overall automotive identity is absolutely waning. It's not nearly... Um, as prevalent anymore. And I think that's a really good thing. I think there's so much more to a car than your wheel and tire fitment or your ride height. And I think a lot of the problems I started feeling towards a community that I was trying to help build was so many people just trying to outdo the last guy. I have the widest wheels. I have the most camber. I have the lowest car, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Just destroying not only their car, but even the overall like aesthetic purpose you know you start leaving you know we'll go back to our high heel example and no longer you're wearing a high heel you're wearing some like really weird you know high fashion weird stuff you'd see on a runway for fashion week that's like not even a shoe anymore it's just i don't know if that analogy makes sense but it just it gets off in the weeds and i don't know what some people are doing here but um coming back around it it it's no, it seems like it's disappearing as part of this overall identity that people are are focused on, and it's more just a single aspect of a car these days. I don't think that a focus on wheel and tire fitment itself is is disappearing. In fact, I'd say it's more 
prevalent than ever. It's it's something that every car person takes into consideration versus, you know, back when I first started getting into this stuff. If you weren't into it, your wheels were likely, you know, a an off-the-shelf package that would fit, you know, like a like a tire rack special or something. It wasn't, you know, sure. no one would accept that these days for their build. Uh, you even look to, you know, modern OEMs and factory cars these days are coming, you know, from the showroom with wheel and tire fitment and offsets that would 15 years ago have been called absolutely crazy to see, uh, you know, anywhere but a show car. Um, it's, 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 it's definitely just, I think becoming a bit more of a standard and thankfully a bit more reserved. And it's just a, an, an aspect of part of what makes a great car. It's a single part of a build. And I like that. Yeah, no, that that's reasonable. I, I think what you said there with the OE manufacturers now offering those, those options. I mean, I think it's one of those situations where the the whole situation, the whole uh, aspects, kind of gone full circle from the aftermarket, and then it's kind of fed back into uh, to the OE world. So, I mean, I guess on one hand, it's it's good that uh, the OEs actually take notice of of what we do in the aftermarket and and kind of learn from that, even if it's maybe not quite a the whole way there, but uh, sure. certainly they're, they're delivering some options that were, as you mentioned, kind of unheard of 10, 15 years ago. Now, l- let's talk about Stanceworks, the, the formation of that. What, what kind of drove you to to forming it and, and, and what was it when you developed it? Well, it, it was born from um, the negative attitudes that were just so entrenched in automotive forums at the time. If you didn't follow the status quo, you were met with just an onslaught of criticism and every thread just turned into a dumpster fire. And I know that uh, there are probably plenty of young people listening right now not understanding what I'm talking about that, but I'm sure you get what I mean (laughs) when when we talk about, you know, automotive forums. That's how all of this stuff, you know, used to be. And, you know, as a, as a kid, like you said, looking for a way to stand out, looking for a way to have fun and focusing on my wheel and tire fitment. You know, I wanted to fit a a wide set of, you know, who knows what kind of wheels they were at the time, uh, on my car, stretched some tires to do it. And it just turned into a a problem every time I posted. And I said, you know what, I'm going to start my own forum where people like me can share their builds and you can do whatever you want to your car and we're going to celebrate it and just kind of have fun. That's what the car community is supposed to be about is enjoying it. Um, and so in 2009, I, I started the forum and that not, then not long after that uh, began a blog to go with it that grew and grew to become uh, you know a, a respectable automotive media outlet that Honestly, it's covered a lot more than just stance over the last, you know, 13 years. It began as stance and and retained a focus on it, but covered everything from, you know, vintage racing to, you know, IMSA racing and a lot of off-road content. I mean, anything and everything. Like I said, everything's got a stance to it. And I like to imagine myself as an automotive storyteller telling stories. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say you're doing an excellent job of that. As I mentioned, I, I you still use uh, Stanceworks as a resource, and it is a, a great resource. You did, however, or have, however, seemingly transfer, transferred your fame kind of at the peak of that stance movement into uh, sort of, well, transitioned into other areas of automotive work. So 
how how did that sort of uh, progress? What did you kind of see? Uh, maybe the writing was on the wall for what you were doing, or was it just a natural progression anyway of what you were doing at the time with Starts Works as a blog? Uh, I think a little bit of both. Um, you know, I've always tried to keep the core of Stance Works as kind of a focus on whatever I'm excited about. You know, if I've if I'm a storyteller, then the best stories are going to be those that I'm excited about or the best content itself will be whatever I am passionate about. And so about a year ago, I had said, all right, I'm going to try to make this transition over to YouTube because these days, let's be real, who's sitting down and reading an article? Uh, everyone's consuming their media either as kind of an instant gratification by you know scrolling on Instagram and they want something one second and then something else the next, or they want to sit down and they want to watch a video and they want to be entertained. Um, I'm not one to want to go into the kind of eyeball fodder of just feeding people as much as they can possibly get in any instant. I, I want to make sure that whatever content I'm producing is quality and and is a focus on, you know, quality over quantity. And so I said, all right, well, I'm going to I'm going to try this YouTube thing. And I really enjoy building cars. Why not uh kind of focus on the builds that I'm working on uh, and see if other people enjoy that too. And so I'm I'm quite fortunate in that this transition over the last year and change, uh people have been really receptive of it. I've found a new audience. I've brought along part of my old audience. Uh, and have just transitioned into what every car guy wants to be doing, which is figure out a way to to build your own projects and your own you know dreams and what have you, and take people along with you and and make a living from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's clear from your subscriber numbers and the the views and comments you're getting on your videos that you you seem to be really hitting a sweet spot, which is great. Uh, I've watched your videos and I've really enjoyed them. What what has been kind of the bigger challenges with that shift from blog to YouTube? Because I mean, obviously, it's a completely different medium. Where now, instead of being kind of hidden behind a, a laptop keyboard, you're actually putting yourself out there in front of a camera. So so that's one aspect, and then uh, obviously that requires a very different skill set. But I'm interested to to sort of hear where where you've seen the the difficulties and challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because in writing articles about cars, and I've written thousands at this point, both for my own website and for plenty of other magazines and periodicals and what have you. There is a formula to it. And you try hard to keep it from becoming formulaic. You try to make sure that whatever story you're writing is can stand on its own. You're not just pulling from your bag of at you know at this point pre-written paragraphs and and filling in the blanks, which you can do. And I think anybody who writes about automobiles regularly is very familiar with, but it's despite that effort to try and not do that, there's only so many ways to write an article about a car and tell the story of a car and its owner and how it came to be and what makes it unique. And I can sit down at any point and hammer out a magazine article in a single day. Um, that, that's not a challenge. 
I have found a huge challenge in trying to produce two episodes that are, you know, give or take 15 minutes long every week. It, it takes X amount of hours in the day to work on the vehicle itself and then to film it, to host the show, to then edit that whole thing, to publish it. Um, and I have personally found that filming anything while I'm trying to work on a car takes probably three times as long to get anything done. I, I, I would say, at least for me, I'm sure plenty of other people have have streamlined it a bit better, but it slows me down tremendously. Uh, so the biggest I, I challenge... I don't know if streamlining that is even possible <laughs> because I couldn't agree more. Uh, when when we did uh, the SR20 engine swap on our 8.6, we, we basically filmed the entire process and did a, a series of episodes on that build and all of the technical aspects and... For me, you know, particularly when we had a, a timeline of the first races is now four weeks away, all I want to do is get stuck in and just get the job done. And it is a frustration because, as you mentioned, the filming just adds so much more time to it. And I think those who, who are just sitting there consuming this content on the internet have no idea just, just what content creators are actually going through to bring that finished product. And of course... It's not just the filming, it's then going ahead and and stitching that all together with with editing, which fortunately we we have a team here who do that for us. But uh, still, it's very, very time consuming. It it really can be brutal and at times, honestly, very demotivating. I I find myself, I don't know if I would say regularly, but somewhat often I'll walk into the shop and I'll know exactly what project I need to get done. Let's say I need to mount my dry sump oil tank. And I have the plan in my head, I know how to execute it, and if it were any, you know, project previous to YouTube, it would just, I'd just dive in and get it done, and it would probably take me an afternoon, it's not a big deal. But even just thinking about the fact, okay, well, before I get started, I've got to get out the camera, make sure the batteries are charged, make sure the memory cards are clear. Okay, now I've got to set up the camera, let me make sure that the lighting is good, can you see what I'm working on, can you see... Uh, past me? Am I going to be in the way of this shot? Can I get multiple angles of this? All right, let me start cutting each thing. Let me cut the bright. And you, you go through all the steps of making this part, but between each and every single step, you reposition the camera. You got to check all those things again. It's just, it can be such a hurdle sometimes. Sometimes I really want to just ignore it and just get something done. And, and at times I do. Sometimes I'll say, yeah, off camera, I did X, Y, or Z. But uh, if you if you don't record it, you don't have content. If you don't have content, you can't stay afloat. I can't make you know my sponsors happy. I don't have ad revenue coming in, so it's it's this double edged sword. And you know, I I never at any point had a desire to put myself on camera. I don't have a desire to be a personality. I don't want to be you know famous in any regard. I don't I don't care about that. It's it all comes down to I want to build my cars. How do I pull that off? And this this seems like a great way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in terms of the fame, I don't. Uh, yes, obviously there are people who who do this for the fame, but I think the reality is that uh, you know people's bullshit radars are very finely tuned these days, and particularly in the automotive content creator world, uh, I, I, I believe that the people who are genuine and you know just trying to do cool shit. That that's the compelling content that at least I want want to watch. So yeah, I, I think 
you know, unfortunately, that maybe fame just naturally follows you because of that. But uh, it's a it's a result, not not something you're actually primarily driving for. Uh, what I, what I wanted to know at the moment is basically your career, your your life is uh, being driven by content creating for YouTube. Is that that's your sort of main income? Is that is that correct? Yeah, it is. Um, so I have StanceWorks and I have sponsors through StanceWorks, essentially advertisers. And thankfully, those advertisers have uh, embraced my transition to YouTube. Um, so I'm very fortunate for that. I don't know how this would even be possible to really get off the ground without having support to get there. Um, and then I have sponsors that sponsor individual builds. Uh, I have, you know, kind of sponsors through YouTube itself in terms of um, just kind of uh content partnerships and producing episodes uh, that are focused around, you know, for example, uh, turtle wax or send to cut send things like that. And then of course you have the YouTube ad revenue, which, uh, you know, the more successful your channel is, the more you have coming in. So that's how I'm pulling it off. That's how I'm making it happen. And my whole goal is monetize what I love to do. And that's be in the garage working on my projects. Yeah, I think I said I seem to say this in every second podcast. But you know, if you can turn your passion, something you actually love doing, into your your job, then that's going to be an amazing career. Because if you're doing something you love, you really never work a day in your life. I mean, obviously, yes, every every job, no matter how much you love it, has its uh, its little downsides, and we don't love every day in the workshop. But uh, yeah, I, I really applaud you uh, turning your passion into something that's actually paying the bills. So, oh, I, I appreciate that. All right, let's move on, and I want to talk about a couple of of maybe your sort of more prominent builds and. Uh, we'll, we'll start by going back a little bit with your BMW. Uh, it's a five three five, if I'm correct. Uh, more more well known as Rusty Slammington, <laughs> <laughs> yep, which, I, which yep. I love, by the way. Um, yeah, can, can, can you talk us through that build? What what is it? And again, I mean, I apologise to our listeners. Obviously, we we don't have the benefit of uh, you know photos or video here in a, in a podcast. But um, yeah, we'll drop some links as well so people can go and check out what we've been talking about later on. Sure. Yeah. Rusty Slammington. It's it's funny. I was so opposed to that car having a name when I built it. So opposed that I even tried to change the name and people weren't having it. They stuck with it and that was that's what it was. And so I've had to embrace it. Um, but yeah, it was an 85 535 uh, E28 sedan that I had bought as a daily driver initially while I was uh, engine swapping my E36 when I was in high school. And I got it for, I actually traded an E30 that I had paid 1500 bucks for, which I miss those days a lot. I think we all do. <laughs> um, and Initially, it was it was a nice, clean black car. It was a relatively normal vehicle, um, but I kind of went off in the weeds myself. And um, at the time, the project began with with I, I had I had a parts car, and I stripped all the paint off of the hood and rusted the hood. I was like into rat rods and whatnot, and I thought the rust had a really cool texture and you know bright orange color. It was cool, contrasting with the black paint of the car. Uh, I had a set of vintage HREs on the car that were wide and aggressive and the car was low and just overall was really embracing this wild aesthetic um, with, with without much regard to performance. And the car started getting some attention. It wound up in Performance BMW Magazine. 
in retrospect, did it deserve that kind of recognition? No, but it was controversial at the time and it was, it was unique at the time. It wasn't something that people had seen. Um, and then a buddy totaled the car and that was my ticket to have all the fun I wanted with it. It was written off. It was worthless. And so I gave the rest of the car the same treatment. I pulled all the paint off of it, uh, rusted the whole skin of the car, fit uh, an original set of 18 inch BBS RS wheels, which are some of the, you know, rarest crown jewels of the re- wheel world out there, uh, at least in the BMW world. And, uh, you know, just, just went all out on this thing and, and it slowly evolved. I swapped a one JZ into it. I chopped the top, I put it on air suspension. I mean, it was this admittedly very odd, odd car, but a lot of people found it endearing. A lot of people found it exciting. Uh, a lot of people couldn't stand it, could not stand it. But through that car, uh, I developed an audience and a following, uh, and people were excited to see whatever I was going to do next with it. Um, and and it snowballed from there. And I think you, you probably know that you're onto something if you're creating at least a little bit of controversy. So so that that's one aspect of it. When you got to a point where your buddy totaled the car and, as you said, you sort of had free reign to, to make it whatever you wanted it to be, did did you have a final vision of what the car was going to look like at that point uh, or has it literally just been an evolution and sort of one month you sort of think to yourself yeah i'm going to i'm going to chop the top now uh, yeah how how did that work out no there was so there was never really a, a an overall game plan it's very much been a very fluid evolution uh rusting the car in its entirety was kind of the only thing that i wanted to do when i had only done the parts car hood uh at that time i had said oh how cool would it look it'd be so crazy it'd be like a rat rod bmw uh, but i wasn't about to do that to my perfectly good car uh but my buddy uh ran it into the side of a semi truck um, and it crushed the A-pillar, smashed the windscreen, uh, insurance wrote it off, but I mean, the car still drove around fine. Uh, and at that point I said, all right, well, I'm going to have some fun. And so I, I rusted it and then, yeah, it was just kind of an evolution from there. At some point I said, well, it'd be kind of fun if it went faster. What could I do? Well, a twin turbo Toyota motor would be pretty cool. Why not go for that? Um, the chopped top was another one where, again, I was pulling these influences from things that were interesting to me, things like hot rotting and rat rotting and, and whatnot at the time. Um, and, it, and it just kind of cycled through. I, I came wildly close to painting the car again at one point and then didn't after friends convinced me not to. Uh, I actually had um, another engine swap uh, in the works for it. I was in the middle of swapping a V12 into it when my garage burned down. And that was kind of the demise of the car as I knew it and people knew it at the time. Uh, my garage that I had in college, uh, it, it went completely up in flames. And at that point, the car was no longer usable. The chassis of it was just wrecked. I mean, this thing was torched, um, as you would expect from a garage fire. You did actually rebuild that though and bring it back, didn't you? Yeah. So I had said, all right, well, car's done. That was, that was a fun run is what it is. And, uh, this, this buddy of mine that was a fabricator that I had mentioned earlier, the, the welder that I would turn to, um, his name was Chuck. And he said, well, let's just, let's just build a tube chassis for it. And at the time I, I didn't even know what a tube chassis was. Um, he, he built tube chassis drag cars 
and he said, check it out. And he, and he was showing me kind of some of the other stuff he had built. And he said, we can, we can just skin the car. You can keep it rusty. It's already, it's, it was rusty. It's even rustier now. It's been to a fire. It's perfect. Let's just put tube work in this thing and make it work. And so we bought a C4 Corvette for all of its suspension and got somewhat far into the process. Uh, and then I moved to California. And so it sat for several years. I built this other hot rod when I realized I need to learn how to fabricate. Um, and once I felt like I knew what I was doing enough to build something, I brought Rusty out to California and I kind of said, you know what? I want to be able to do this entire thing myself. I cut out all of the progress that we had made. I cut out and cut up the tube chassis that was in there and started from scratch and said, I'm going to build one from the ground up. And <laughs> that build snowballed wildly. But I, again, just decided to pull influence from everything that was exciting to me. And at that time, uh, my favorite cars on planet Earth were the Porsche 935 uh, K3 and the Group 5 Ford Zaxspeed Capri. Uh, both of those were just as cool as a car gets to me. These very silhouette style cars that look loosely like their street counterparts, but are just on steroids, these crazy wide fenders. And uh, especially if you start getting off into the weeds, some of them were uh, even body dropped. There's a uh, version of an E21 called a DRM that had the whole bottom of the car cut off and it was hugging the ground and it looked like it had a chopped top to it. And I was like, man, this is perfect. I'm going to turn my car into this and decided I'm going to build my own group five car from hell. That was kind of the the build plan for the kind of rebuild of Rusty that was unveiled in uh, 2015 at SEMA. So built a full tube chassis for it, uh, built an absolutely mental uh, dry sump S38 race engine uh, by the guys at VAC Motorsports in Philadelphia. Um, H&R helped me kind of bring the whole car to life, helped me develop suspension for this thing. It was all push rod uh, with inboard coilovers. Uh, it was a, it was a really cool car. It was absolutely wild. Uh, and just kind of said, I'm going to build the craziest thing I can conjure up and showcase every bit of inspiration that makes me excited about cars. I mean, it, yeah, you certainly jumped in the deep end building a, a full tube chassis for the car. But I mean, as you say, when your, uh, your car burns to the ground, if you want to bring it back to life, that that's a, a totally viable option. I mean, I think the other thing as well is we've, we've sort of talked a couple of times already about how our stance goes further than than just a wheel and tyre fitment. And I mean, I think you, you really epitomise this with, with the BMW and particularly you know, when you dive deeper than just the bodywork, I mean that that's pretty obvious. The the rusted look, the 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 white guards, etc. But yeah, you know, it's every aspect of the project as well. When you talk about a cheap chassis, I mean that's maybe not immediately obvious from the outside. But people who really are into cars, I mean that's something that you can really appreciate the time and the effort and the planning that went into that, uh, and also you know uh, the the suspension system that you've just you've just talked about as well. So. Uh, not a project to to be taken lightly, and uh, I, I want to sort of talk shortly a, about your your planning process for projects. Before we we do get into that, though, uh, I think it's probably smart that we jump into uh, the project that you're currently working on, which is probably just as controversial, but um, <laughs> maybe with a slightly more performance orientated uh, direction to it, from what I'm seeing, which is of course your Ferrari 308 build. So, give us the sort of the the quick 
overview of, of what that project is and how that came to be perhaps sure so it's a it's a 1981 Ferrari 308 GTBI uh, that is most widely known at the moment for uh, having a thousand horsepower K24 Honda motor sitting in the back of it paired with a five-speed sequential gearbox uh, and a whole bunch of other goodies. And the project itself is the result of multiple things. So it's at this point abundantly clear aesthetics matter to me. And I knew I wanted to build a car that was better than anything I had built before. And I wanted to build something that I was more excited about than ever before. I've always really had a thing for the Ferrari 308, especially when they used to be cheap uh, here in the States. I mean, <laughs> back when I was in college, you could find them for you know 20,000 bucks, which is not cheap by any measure, but for a Ferrari, that's fantastic. But uh, I, I didn't have any method of attaining one back at that time. Uh, and these days I said, if I don't hop on one now, I'm never going to get to afford one because presumably the values of these things are just going to continue to climb. Uh, so I tracked down and bought the the nicest 308 coupe I could get my hands on. Uh, unfortunately, it wound up being a really nice car that I'm hacking to pieces. Um, but dove in and said, I'm going to build the the coolest and best 308 I can. And that began by getting rid of the absolutely atrocious motor that is in them. And I know Ferrari guys are hearing this and they're upset about it, but I put that car on a dyno before we pulled the motor out. It made 163 horsepower at the wheels, uh, which for a 20% drivetrain loss puts it exactly at the 202 factory rated brake horsepower. The car is a slouch. It has no guts to it. It is insanely heavy for its size. It weighs 3,200 pounds. Uh, so I don't know what oh. that would be in kilos, but it's a lot. It's a lot more than it should be. Um, and it's, uh, it's just... As a whole, it's not a wonderfully built vehicle. The chassis work in it is terrible. It's very clearly built by some dudes in a in a backyard. I mean, it, it just the car is a pile of garbage. I'll, I'll be honest. It's <laughs> it, it might look right. beautiful. For, Ferrari enthusiasts, cover your ears now. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks gorgeous, and that's why I bought it because I love the way that it looks. But it's a it's a trash car. Um, so at this point, I've said let's. Let's get out there and, and try to improve every aspect that I can. So I ripped the engine out, started realizing there's a lot of other weight to save, pulled everything else out, realized that the suspension had a lot of room for improvement. So I tossed all the suspension components in the trash and said, well, I'm going to build my own, uh, you know, independent suspension front and rear, uh, used Fusion 360 and CAD to design all new control arms, uh, uprights, and have just at this point gotten rid of pretty much everything except for the Pininfarina body that the car came with. Um, All right. I'll, I'll probably will stop you there because uh, otherwise I'm going to forget half of the things you've said and there's so much you've already mentioned just to sort of go back and unpack there. Uh, so I, I think one thing that's worth mentioning here is the intention of the project, which is at least as I understand it from the videos I have watched, th this is going to be used for time attack competition, Correct. Correct. Yeah. The, the overall goal of the car is to build something I can uh, use in the global time attack series. Um, so there there is a rule set that I am bound by, which is the limited class rules. Uh, and the reason I'm in that class uh, in particular is because I have a different make of engine in my car. 
Um, so that is, that's the lowest class that I can compete in. Um, and truthfully, the car is not going to be competitive, uh, in that class. It just, unless I were to go so far beyond what I want to actually own, uh, the limited class rule set allows you to go really, really far. Um, and I want a car that I can still drive on the street if I want to, that I can still enjoy because I'm trying to build something that I can actually drive. Uh, and I was going to mention there as well that arguably if you were building a car with a clean sheet of paper in front of you and your intention was to be competitive in, well, I mean, any form of, of road racing, but time attack in this instance, uh, arguably a 308 GT uh, be maybe not maybe not the best idea, but I mean, you know, it, it, it's you've got to you've got to be also working with a car that you appreciate and and, and enjoy and, and and want. So you know, the, there's there's levels to this stuff, and you know, just being at the front of the field is not always the the main motivator for everyone who's who's getting into motorsport. That is that reasonable? Yeah, I mean, anybody who wants to build something that's actually fast, do not start with a 308 in any capacity. I mean, the chassis in it is the car is from 1980, but it shares the chassis uh, identically with the the Dino. So the chassis in this thing is from the 60s. It's antiquated and terrible, and it flexes, and it's just it's just not a good car. Um, why did You're I really choose that? It to me. <laughs> I just, again, I, I love the way that it looks. I think it's one of the most beautiful cars ever built. And so I said, I'm going to make my own version of one of those and have as much fun as I can. And who knows, I could get to the end of this and the car could drive terribly, but I'm still having fun. I'm here for the build and hopefully I can go out and have fun on the track. Um, as far as being competitive, I mean, I would love to to, con to continue to develop the car. And, and if I go out and it proves that this build does have some potency to it, who knows, maybe I will push it further and push it closer to the limit of that limited class rule set. Uh, the unfortunate reality for the rules is I wish I could compete in what's called street class, which sounds like a street car class. It's really not. It's it's still quite ag aggressive. Uh, there's no street car class car that would be legal uh, on the roads in Australia, for example. But um, it's I'm immediately excluded from that class solely because it's a Honda engine in a Ferrari. I could use a modern 488 Pista engine in my car and still be in street class, but because I changed it, I have to. I have to be in limited. This is a. This is probably a good time to talk about that that engine choice uh, because obviously. Any time you decide to take the Ferrari engine out of a Ferrari and put anything anything else in it, uh, definitely if it's going to have the Honda badge on it, is going to uh, create a little bit of controversy out there on the internet. I don't argue the the choice of the K20 engine. I mean, when we did our SR20 uh, VE turbo conversion on our Toyota 86, every single person or every single uh, episode there'd be uh, half a dozen people in the comments saying oh you should have put a k20 in it um i mean I, I digress the reason we did that was we had a built sr20 sitting in the workshop so if i had a clean sheet of paper i probably would have gone down the k20 route uh so is the awesomeness of the turbocharged k series engine the the main motivator here or is there a hint of you know this is going to drum up some views on the internet along with that uh, or is the alternative the 488 engine that you just mentioned you know, just 
prohibitively expensive financially to, to even uh, consider keeping a, a fryer engine in the 308 chassis. You know, a lot of people have said that I chose the Honda engine specifically because it would rile people up and cause controversy and what have you. And while those factors are certainly true, I mean, it has caused tons of controversy, the most controversial part about the car. But uh, to anybody that's been willing to engage in the conversation with me about it, I've, I've genuinely challenged them, bring a better engine option to the table, because I don't think that there is one. Uh, and kind of going to the 488 comment you made where it's just prohibitively expensive, the K-Series has so many advantages to to the car that I'm building, starting with the fact that it's a wonderful platform because the 308 is a transverse V8 car. It's not longitudinal. So that really prohibits you from fitting longitudinally based engines inside of that car. It's not very long. It's not very big. Uh, it has been done before, but only by guys cutting the cars apart and stretching them and putting 288 uh, bodywork on them because the 288 is a 308, but it's stretched and wider and et cetera. So looking at transverse engine options, there are some out there that are great, but the Honda platform, especially drawing from cars that are front wheel drive, that's kind of the easiest way to accomplish this goal. Uh, it seems to me like the best option. There were there were some other engines that I thought about and considered. I really like the idea of a uh, Volkswagen VR6 turbo uh, in part because the, the engine has great packaging. It has a really high power potential and it sounds amazing. One of the coolest sounding engines out there. But one problem that I thought was they're not very lightweight. And two is that they're not really used in any racing uh, platform to a large degree. I know that there are race cars out there with them, but when we talk about the Honda K series, there are cars raced at every track across the world every weekend that use them from prototype racing to time attack racing to, uh, spec racing and what have you. It's, it's, it's an engine with a ton of development from both the aftermarket and from Honda themselves. Uh, and, and so it seems like a great platform for me, somebody who wants to take this car racing, to use because I know that the aftermarket has solved pretty much every major issue that comes with it. Uh, it's a, it's an inexpensive platform. You know, you can buy a 1000 horsepower crate engine, you know, a long block for 10,000 bucks and have it shipped to your door. And of course you can spend more than that if you want to. And I certainly have, but the, the power per dollar is pretty hard to beat by many other platforms, at least in my experience. And again, I'm not an engine builder. Um, but again, you know, huge power potential out of this engine, lots of reliability, a massive aftermarket, um, a ton of knowledge base, which was important to me. There's a lot of people out there that have done a lot of really weird things with this engine. So putting one in the back of a Ferrari isn't that difficult in the scope of things. Um, and, and then, you know, cost and then last but not least weight, the 308 was really heavy. I pulled the engine and tr and transmission out of it and I weighed it uh, fully dressed with the mufflers, 850 pounds. So I have, to, I think there's probably about 400 kilos, give or take. Um, That's about right. Actually, also your reference to the overall weight of the car, I actually uh, just did the quick calculation there. So for those who work in metric, uh, that was uh, about 1,450 kgs. There you which go. Which is a huge amount of weight for an incredibly small car. 
so I you know, the 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 Honda engine and transmission and everything fully dressed is half that weight. And while there are lighter engines out there, it is a great option f- keeping that weight in mind. And then you have other things like uh, transmission options. I was able to source a really robust sequential gearbox to go with it and things like that. It's just there are other options that could go in the back of that car, but I don't think any of them make as much sense when you really list out all the pros and cons because there's not really many cons other than to the types of folks who are convinced I've put a lawnmower engine in the back of a race car of some kind. I mean, obviously some people are are just never going to get it and want to see a Ferrari engine in a Ferrari, which, yeah, that's fine. Uh, Everything you say about the fitment of the the 488 or any other conventional uh, Ferrari engine makes sense. Uh, Making it a transverse V8 in in the 308 does add a a little bit of complexity. And, of course, yeah, a a four-cylinder then makes uh, for a a pretty easy fitment. So, I mean, that's that's one thing. I personally, I couldn't agree more with your choice. Uh, I would say that in my experience tuning, I've probably tuned dozens uh, of different generations of K-series with different modifications. And and time and time again, I I believe that they are the best flowing cylinder head of of any of the conventional four-cylinder engines we have access to. Uh, Just a lot of technology in there with the VTEC and the continuously variable cam control, which just works so well. And then you go and add a turbocharger on it and hold on because it just magnifies everything that Honda provided from the factory. And the the number of, of... K series is getting around with you know 600, 800, 1000 plus horsepower is testament to uh, that uh, base architecture of the engine. But I think the other thing that's really easy to overlook that you, you've mentioned there is all of the hard work has already been done by literally hundreds, if not of thousands of other people out there, enthusiasts and manufacturers. So you're not reinventing the wheel here and Yes, there's an argument that you could put almost any engine in that chassis and get a thousand horsepower, but at, at what cost? Certainly, almost certainly, you're not going to be starting with a ten thousand uh, dollar base motor, and you know then there's there's all the development that goes along once you actually hit the track and finding out what falls to pieces, what actually needs to be upgraded. So. Yeah, if if you want to concentrate on building a car and not necessarily worry about the powertrain elements, uh, yeah, all power to you. I think it, it just it is a smart option. Now, I, I want to talk about a couple of other elements with the car because you've already mentioned that the three hundred eight that you actually found yourself with is is immaculate, and you know, w- watching your videos, it, it does seem like it's uh, it's been very well looked after, like I had a full service uh, history. Uh, when you're really only retaining the the bodywork, is this the smartest place to start, or would you normally be looking for something that's maybe a little bit more rundown? Um, well, I looked for a while for a car that was not that nice. Um, I have learned, uh, especially through the first hot rod that I built, that 28 Model A. I bought that as a disassembled body sitting on top of the original chassis uh, and it had like no parts and pieces to go with it. And I learned very rapidly that all of the little bits and pieces that are car specific, such as door hinges and latches and window mechanisms and things like that. uh, That's the type of stuff I've decided I never want to deal with finding again. 
so any project car, I, I wouldn't have gone and bought just a bare shell that somebody had, you know, let's say taken apart to have it done with a rotisserie or something because it would nickel and dime me to death trying to get all those parts and pieces. And I don't know what they are and I don't know how they work. And the fact that I have all of them now and can see them with my own eyes is advantageous. But ignoring that, I was 100% willing to buy a car that somebody had pulled the motor out of, blown the engine, um, or had given up on, something that somebody had ripped the entire interior out of, a parts car, what have you. I mean, it only had to be so complete for me to be happy. Uh, The only requirement that I had is I wanted a coupe. And the 308 comes in the coupe and the kind of target top variant. Um, And the the coupes do command a a price premium for them. Uh, There are fewer of them out there. And so that limited the number of cars I could find. And kind of the other aspect was I wasn't willing to deal with one that had any rust or like real crash damage. I didn't want a crashed car. Um, Rust is a no-go. I won't touch a car that has any rust on it, ironically, following my rusty build. But uh, that, you know, again, limits the, the pool size. I found one coupe, uh, in New York that was pretty promising for a pretty fair price when I was looking. Uh, but as I got further into kind of looking at the car with the owner, uh, the car had been sideswiped and it had been color changed and none of the parts in the inside of the car were original and you get it. The car that I wound up with is the second cheapest coupe I could get my hands on, period. Uh, so I, I really did luck into buying a car that I truthfully think I could have turned around and sold for probably, you know, 30 to 40% more than I paid for it. Um, I got really lucky. It was a wonderfully kept car that had every record, every, I mean, the, the cars, it's the nicest car I've ever owned. Uh, and that's on a long list of projects that I've had, but, uh, it wasn't my goal to start out with a with a really nice car to tear apart, but I don't have any regrets at all because the nicer of a car you start with, the less work that you have to do and the more parts that you have on it that you can sell off. I mean, I pulled the engine out of it and because I had all of the records to go with it, I was able to sell the engine itself for 12,000 um, bucks. And as we said, you know, that, that engine sucks. So I feel bad for the guy that paid that. But, um, you know, being able to, pull the engine out and and fund the purchase of my new engine outright has a lot of appeal to it. And the same thing goes for all of the interior components and all the little parts and pieces that I don't need, which at this point is most of them. Um, so I, I, I think starting with a nice car was the right move. I think th- there's a couple of aspects to that as well. I mean, obviously you, you're not um, starting with a car that's, uh, you know, there's not thousands of them out there to choose from, so you know you take essentially what you can get. I, I 100% agree uh, that starting with something that's subpar in terms of accident damage, rust, uh, I, I would be in the same situation. Just a, that's that's a no no brainer for me. I don't I don't want to be starting with something like that. What what's probably easier to overlook though is your point about all of those little bits and pieces like the the window mechanisms and you know hinges etc. And particularly when you're dealing with an exotic brand like Ferrari, I can only imagine if you had to try sourcing those, you know, even if you know what you're looking for, the the cost and the frustration of finding them, yeah, it would just be a no-brainer starting with a, a, a complete car. 
I'm I'm assuming at this point that when you dive into a project like this with a, an exotic classic, if we can call 163 wheel horsepower exotic <laughs> uh, in the first instance, that aside, I, I'm I'm guessing that you kind of just put resale out of your brain and it is what it is. Uh, you're not looking at what that project's going to potentially net you in the next five or ten years in terms of if if you had to move it on. A hundred percent. Yeah. You just kind of have to bite the bullet and say, this is what it costs to do this. If you, you have to pay to play. Um, and that's not to say I, you know, am in a position to be that willy nilly with money, but I knew going in exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, and I sold my truck in order to buy this thing. I said, I'm never going to get a chance to do this again. Uh, I might as well go all in. And yeah, it's just kind of a matter of you gotta you gotta nut up and say I'm I'm gonna say screw it I'm gonna hack my vintage Ferrari apart and especially with the way the market has gone since I bought this thing I mean it probably if I hadn't done anything it'd probably be a hundred thousand dollar car if I had left it alone but um, I'm not worried about it I don't I don't I don't even think about it and and when I do I think it's more funny than anything you got to be able to embrace it if you if you sweat it you, you're not gonna wind up with something special you're not going to wind up with something your own so it's just it's just a matter of if you if you want to to build a you know crazy old ferrari you you know if you want to make an omelet you got to break some eggs i think the other thing is you know starting with something of this nature as a project for what you've got envisaged here that's what sets you apart from everyone else who's building mainstream cars that you can still buy off the secondhand car lot in in mass. It's it's something unique, and there is a there's a, a cost involved in doing something unique. So as long as you factor that into the project and you know what you're getting yourself in for, well, absolutely have at it. And um, I'd suggest maybe uh, you stop watching the the resale values for classic 308s because it's only going to disappoint you from here on in. Yeah, I, I'm sure that it will. I, as soon as I bought the car, uh, considering what I bought it for, I remember arguing. Some one of the guys on the major Ferrari forum found my videos and posted them up, and another person linked me over, and it was quite fun reading all of the the dialogue from the Ferrari purist community because very few of them are into what what I'm doing to put it lightly. Um, but I, I remember arguing like, guys, you're treating this like this car is going to be worth a fortune someday. Like relax. You're not dry. It's not an F40. You know, it's, it's the cheapest, most accessible Ferrari money can buy outside of one or two very undesirable models, like a Mondial or something. Um, sure. but who knows, maybe I'll have to eat my words. If the, if the market keeps doing the crazy shit it's doing, um, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll be embarrassed. But hey, I, I'm having more fun with my car than they are theirs. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Uh, you could you see exactly the same sort of uh, comments discussed uh, on Porsche purist forums with with those performing RWB wide body conversions on the the classic 964. And you know, the, the yeah, again, it, it's it's a personal thing. So. Uh, yeah, you know what you're getting yourself in for, and and it just is what it is. What I'm interested in with a project like this, with the Ferrari, do did you kind of have? Uh, I really sort of asked the same thing with your BMW, but with this one, did you have a, a really solid sort of end result pictured in your mind, or again, is this one a bit like the BMW where it's kind of evolving? It seems to me like you've got a, a bit of a clearer path with what the the finished product should be here. 
Oh, 100% on this car, uh, before I ever bought it, I knew exactly what I wanted to build. Um, there are aspects of the build that I didn't uh, anticipate um, having to tackle. For example, I didn't know going in that I was going to redesign all of the suspension in the car. That came about from once I put the wider fenders on it, realizing that, for example, the front suspension was going to have just a completely screwed up scrub radius and that I wanted to improve that. And then the rear uh, stub shaft design on that car has a design flaw where if you put R-Comp tires, even on a factory 308, you can break the stub axle and the wheel comes off the car and things like this where it's you have to either work around them or scrap them entirely and, and do better. And I chose the, the secondary. Um, so I, I don't want to mislead and say I planned on doing everything that I'm doing from the get-go uh, this deep. I, I partially went into this telling myself uh, I didn't want another tube chassis project yet. I want to, I need a little bit of time to breathe. I wanted something that was based off of a road vehicle. Um <laughs> there's not much road 308 left here, but that's why I haven't gone to a tube chassis at this point. It probably would have made more sense. I probably would wind up with a better car, but um, I was going to actually ask that as my next question. I mean, given you've, you've mentioned the chassis is, you know, from the, the Dino. So I think you said a sixties chassis design, you've then gone and redeveloped all of the suspension around it. Obviously the custom work involved in mounting the K20 and sequential gearbox at that point, are you sort of do you weigh up and sort of think, well, shit, you know, maybe just a full tube chassis and hang the uh, the three hundred eight body on it, it is going to give a, a, a maybe even a quicker result. Yeah, honestly, it, it probably would be quicker. Um, I mean, I I built the BMW tube chassis in about the same amount of time as this project will have taken me. And that was with a full-time job that was not <laughs> specifically building the car. So, uh, but you know, it's, there, there is an evolution aspect to it. I, I went in knowing I want a 308. I want to get rid of that engine. I want to put a K series in it. I want to build it for time attack and I want to have something that I can have a lot of fun in. And I'm, I'm trying to build a dream car of my own, you know, whatever's going on in my head, so to speak. But, um, to some degree, yeah, there, there have been times where I've said I should just bin everything in this and, and start over and, and build a tube chassis. Uh, and who knows if I hang on to the car, that could very well be something that I do as a kind of revision. It's like, all right, I saw what the car could be. Now let's make it that and start over. You know, I don't have any problem scrapping what I've done so far because the important aspects to it I can just bring forth to the next version of the build. Um, or I'll, you know, save that tube chassis project in its entirety for whatever I'm going to build next. Um, and, and, and I've been itching to do it again. Um, especially with the use of, of 3d tools and, and getting to bring CAD design into it. Um, so I think that's in the relative near future for me, probably within the next year or so I'll, I'll dive in and, and tackle a full tube build and, and see what I can do now that I've learned that much more since I built the first one. But for now, it's just a matter of, of seeing how, I don't know how, how much of the Ferrari I can keep so that it is not a, uh, a full blown race car. I, I do want something that is streetable and usable in some maybe abstract sense. Uh, that's totally fair. I think 
no matter how thoroughly planned out a project is, they they do take on a life of their own as you develop them. And I don't think there would be a project out there where you know maybe half or three quarters of the way through the project, those involved haven't gone back and sort of said to themselves, well, shit, if I knew what we were getting ourselves in for at this point, probably would have taken a slightly different path or direction. But uh, hey, that's that's just all part of the, the fun and we don't have crystal balls when we, we start this to sort of see what the uh, the finished ro- result is going to be. Uh, you've mentioned CAD a few times here and um, I've watched you use Fusion 360 to design the likes of, of an engine mount. Uh, how, how powerful and important has CAD become a, as a tool to even the home enthusiast car builder? I mean, years ago, it was really out of reach, at least as far as I saw it. And you know, it was only you know, very high-end race workshops or you know, maybe uh, sports car builders that were, were using these tools. But, but now we have them at our fingertips and they're accessible for the average enthusiast. So yeah, how, how important has that become? I urge my audience to use CAD all the time. I've even put together uh, a how-to episode to kind of teach them the basics. I use CAD every chance that I can. So I, I have personally found that has it has significantly improved the quality of my fabrication, not only in terms of parts that I CAD and then have, you know, laser cut or CNC or what have you, uh, even when I'm going to go make tabs, you know, for mounting or supporting anything, I can design it in CAD and print those templates out and give myself full, you know, drill drill templates for, you know, certain bolt patterns and PCDs and, you know, mounting patterns or folding patterns so I can make complex sheet metal shapes. Uh, and once you know how to use the software, you can sit down and make something relatively quickly. I mean, uh, before we hopped in here, I was in the middle of, of putting together some DXF files for a full aluminum battery box. That's going to be in the Ferrari holding the battery. Uh, And the fact that I can design something and make something that not only looks like it came from, you know, those top tier race shops, like you mentioned, because this is, you know, where that technology was originally used in an automotive sense. I can then send it out and have a part show up at my door ready to be welded and put together. And it's it's such an incredible tool that can make anybody out there fabricate like the best of them. I mean, if you can stick it together, you can have the pieces show up to your door looking like they're you know from a full-blown race team. Um, I've loved it. I want to incorporate more and more and more of it into my builds. Um, and it and it has pushed me down the path of wanting to bring in something like a CNC plasma table or something into my shop. That seems like a relatively affordable way to really increase the capability of what I can do in house. I agree. Uh, I don't personally use um, CAD myself, but uh, we're lucky enough to have someone within the workshop, uh, Brandon, uh, who who's really talented with Fusion 360. And I mean, just seeing how he's utilised Fusion 360 to help us with the projects in-house, our SR86 build. I mean, just recently as an example, which kind of mirrors your battery box example, uh, designed up a, an alloy uh, fuel tank for an FJ40 project and incorporates a, a radium uh, built-in surge tank system. So it's got some internal baffles, it's got a bit of shape to it, so it fits nicely in the in the space that's available. So he's able to model all of that up and you know, once he was happy with, with everything in 
uh, Fusion 360, we just literally send the cut list to uh, a sheet metal company and a, a week later all of the parts turn up on a courier ready to, to weld together. We, we know they're going to fit, uh, it's easy to weld, there's, there's no gaps to fill because it's all perfect, we don't have to go and cut these parts by hand. I mean it just simplifies the project so dramatically, the, the cost for the, the cutting is minuscule compared to considering the time it would take to do all of that by hand. And as a result, you get you get a superior product. So I think, what's what's not to like? Why would we not use that technology? Obviously, the, the stumbling block for a lot of people is learning to use it. So, talk us through your sort of process. How how did you become proficient with Fusion three hundred and sixty? Uh, one of my best friends, Nick Foster, um, is a you know CAD engineer for a living, more or less. And so I was fortunate that I had him as a resource when I was trying to get going and could ask him questions. But to your point you made earlier, we're in an age where there's so much information at our fingertips. You can hop on YouTube and find an answer to literally any CAD-related question, whether you're using Fusion 360 or SolidWorks or what have you. Someone has done it and put together a tutorial on how to do it. Uh, Sometimes you have to get abstract with things, you know, just because you want to build... Uh, you know, a specific something doesn't mean somebody will show you how to do exactly that, but they'll give you the tools to ha- on how to do it uh, if you're willing to kind of, you know, use your brain and some logic. And you can find anything out there and, it, and it's so simple to become proficient at relatively rapidly. I mean, I've had a few friends express interest and I've given them a very quick crash course or even uh, linked them to one or two videos and they're off to the races. You can, you can be making parts I think within a day, if you put one, you know, Saturday long afternoon uh, in, I think by the end of by the end of one day, you could be comfortable and confident in making um, relatively complex things in in Fusion three hundred and sixty. It's great. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of want to hit the ground running and be up to speed uh, at uh, the likes of, we had one of our guests, Josh Valens from Motorsport Engineering, who who has modelled his entire car uh, in SolidWorks. And I mean, it, it is a, a work of art. Uh, they want to be at that sort of proficiency within five minutes. And clear, clearly there's a learning curve with anything new. But I mean, you just mentioned there a, a solid afternoon and you're capable to, of doing the, the basics. I mean, for me, that's not... That's not a, a lot of effort to put in for the results that that can provide. So I, I, yeah, I, I think it's well worthwhile. The other aspect, which is so easy to overlook, is guaranteed fitment. You can you can play around with these things in uh, the virtual world and and have a, a a guarantee that when you actually go and manufacture them, it, it's actually going to work just like you intended. Which uh, you can't always say that's that's how things work out when you manufacture parts or fabricate parts uh, with, without that benefit. Now, I, I recently watched you use SolidWorks to design a, a rear engine mount or transmission mount for the, the K20. And I thought this was a really novel aspect because a lot of people are thinking probably SolidWorks, okay, well, Fusion 360, great, we'll, we'll make a, a very expensive uh, alloy component that we're going to have to send a file off to a CNC machine shop and it's going to cost us hundreds if not thousands. But the reality is, like that, that's yes, that's one way we can use it, but uh, you're using it for a much more manual task. Can, can you talk us through uh, the 
how you used Fusion 360 to make a template and then cut that template and, and fold uh, fold up a, a mount. Yeah, Fusion 360 has some really cool um, sheet metal tools that allow you to assembly or essentially draw something in two dimensions and then fold it uh, as though it were a piece of metal, and it will tell you exactly where to cut and bend and drill and what have you. Uh, and it makes making parts out of sheet or plate steel, uh, in this case, let's call it, uh, you know, two or three mil steel, uh, incredibly simple. You can tell the computer exactly how thick of a material you're going to use, and it will account for it in all of its bends. Uh, it does all of the hard work. And so if you could, you know, let's say you wanted to make a, a, a mount or a brace or something, if you can draw it on a napkin you can make it in CAD and have it spit out a template that you can then print out and glue or trace onto a piece of sheet metal uh, and, and cut out. And I use I use that tool uh, every week, every single week. I, I hardly make anything without a template from Fusion these days, unless it's really small and really simple, because I know that the template it will spit out will be truly perfect. It will be, you know, square and straight and all of the holes will be exactly where they need to be. And if I transfer that accurately, I'm set. I don't, I don't have to worry about nearly as much human error. Uh, and there's plenty when I work because I'm not the most, you know, dexterous person there's ever been. I can't draw anything to save my life. Um, you know, if I cut stuff out with scissors, it's never straight, but having these tools that help that really transforms what I'm capable of. And I have to imagine it's the same for other people too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think the other thing that's uh, easy to overlook with this as an, an advantage is you've then got a file of these templates. So if in you know the future there's an accident with the car or something like that, maybe a part needs to be remade, you've got that library of templates. So you don't have to go back and, and reinvent the wheel and, and recreate these parts from, from scratch. You've, yeah, you've really got a, a head start. It's, it's quite cool. So I, I drew all of the suspension and kind of cross members for uh, my current Model A. I have a 31 Model A with a blown V8 in it. Uh, and I designed a, a lot of the front of that chassis in CAD because I designed my own independent short long arm double A arm suspension for it. And uh, I recently had a bit of an accident with it. And so I set out to rebuild it. And what's great is I still have all of the CAD files from that. And so not only was I able to just take those CAD files and send them out to be recut, uh, it was simple enough for me to sit down and say, all right, what kind of improvements do I want to make to my front suspension geometry since I'm going to do this from square one again? Uh, and so I made a handful of changes that I could, uh, you know, see in three dimension uh, right there in front of me what it's going to look like when I'm done send it all out to be cut, weld it all together. And there I have a replacement, you know, front subframe or chassis ready to go. And it minimized the amount of work. And that type of thing is, you know, it doesn't have to be just because you wrecked your car. Uh, it could be, you know, development, improvement, um, revision, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've mentioned that you started off your fabrication journey with, with a MIG, which I think is probably where most uh, home enthusiasts would sensibly start. Uh, MIG welding is pretty flexible and probably more importantly, it, it's relatively quick and easy to become proficient with a MIG. Uh, but you also mentioned you more recently added a TIG welder, which is definitely a, another layer of complexity, learning to TIG weld. Uh how do you decide what what is the right job for a MIG versus a TIG? Uh, obviously, notwithstanding alloy, we're really 
sure, TIG is sure. the, the RNA sensible option. You know, these days I really try to use the TIG everywhere that I can. Um, if it's possible, it's what I use largely because one, I enjoy the process a lot more. I have a lot more control and I can tell what I'm doing a lot easier. Um, and two, because it just looks a lot better. I mean, there are guys out there that can MIG weld and, and can make it look incredible. I'm not one of those guys going back to my dexterity comment, but, um, Overall, now that I have that TIG skill set uh, in my toolbox, I really try to use it as much as possible. And I find that every time I sit down, I feel like I get better and better and better. And it's a skill that I really want to improve, especially when it comes to those alloys like you talked about. I mean, steel is one thing, but once you start you know, tinkering with aluminum or titanium, uh, it's, it's a different challenge. And if you don't have those base TIG skills, you're really going to struggle with it. And so the more, you know, mild steel I wind up welding, the, the better I see it reflected in those more complicated alloys too. But there's still a, a place for MIG no matter what. I mean, I built every project prior to my Ferrari with a MIG welder. I MIG welded the complete tube chassis on Rusty. I MIG welded the chassis underneath my first Model A and the second one. I've MIG welded so many roll cages and you know, I have no qualms with any of them. Um, as said, it, it can look good and, and my MIG welding's fine. It's nothing to write home about. Uh, but again, as I get better and better with that TIG, it's really hard to, to go back. You have just so much more control. Yeah. I think, uh, the, there's an argument for the MIG where speed is important. The, there's no questions asked. I mean, you, you're probably going to be able to weld up a structure in a third of the time, if not faster, with a, a MIG oh, yeah. over a TIG. And, and it's also a hell of a lot more uh, flexible in terms of if you've got a bit of poor fit up. Uh, TIG welding, really, you've got to be on your game with the, the fit up, which again is really sort of comes back to that, that CAD design that's going to guarantee the fit up. But yeah, MIG welding, it's a little bit more flexible in terms of being able to bridge some some gaps where maybe you've been uh, a little bit lazy maybe with, with that fit up. I, I'd say that TIG welding as well it, it is a, a perishable skill and, and I say that purely because I, I have TIG welded uh, a fair bit back in my earlier days when I ran my own workshop and um, I'd say I was never amazing at it but uh, I'd uh, put down a, a weld that, that I wouldn't have been embarrassed to uh, put on Instagram so maybe it wouldn't make uh, weld porn but it was okay and I uh, probably haven't actually picked up a TIG torch for the past seven or eight years and the other day I, I just happened to have a, a jam on our brand new TIG and uh, it it wasn't great let's be honest <laughs> uh, and uh, spent more time trying to extract the uh, tungsten from the weld pool than, uh, than actually laying down welds so yeah I, I think TIG welding is definitely one of those uh, areas where it, it does reward time on the torch and uh, a steady hand is, is also really critical. Um, now I want to move on to, to another topic which I kind of alluded to earlier which is project planning uh, because obviously you're in a situation where you've now got a lot of experience with building project cars and I mean I think there's probably more project cars out there that don't actually see their way through to completion than those that, that actually do. And there's nothing worse than an enthusiast pouring in a lot of time, effort, blood, sweat and tears into their project car. And it, it kind of just gets so drawn out or they don't know what they're getting into at the start and they lose interest and kind of abandon the project. So have you got any tips there on, on your process of project planning to try and ensure 
as smooth a journey as you possibly can? Well, I'll preface by saying I am a terrible planner. I am just not a good one by any measure. Um, but I do try, and I think trying is is the most important part, right? And it's important to always think as many steps ahead as you can in a project. You don't want to box yourself into a corner. You don't want to have downtime where you're sitting there, you know, twiddling your thumbs. And I, I find myself doing that all the time. Let's, I'm, I'm not innocent here, but uh, the more focus you can put into that, uh, the better. Uh, as far as projects kind of sitting and getting unfinished, you know, I've had more people than I can count over the years kind of reach out and say something to the effect of, hey, how do you stay motivated on a project, especially one that takes, you know, a year or two years? How do you, you know, stay in the garage? How do you get this thing done? And the unfortunate reality there is, is I tell them all the same thing. There's no shortcut. You have to want it. You have to want to finish it. You have to want to see the project through. I, I can say firsthand Many, many times throughout a project, every project I've ever done, I'll find myself, you know, in a, in a rut, not wanting to work on it, not wanting to pick up the tools. It's just a burden or it's a challenge or I just, I'm over it. I feel burnt out. That's something every builder is going to feel. Um, and the one that separates, the thing that separates folks that will finish a project from those that don't is when you persevere and you pick up those tools and you get back into it. Um, you know, you got to take a break. You can't burn yourself out. You've got to make sure that you, uh, you know, take care of yourself and your mental health and what have you, but you got to pick the tools back up or that, that project's going to collect dust. You got to want it. You have to want it. I don't think there's any other shortcut to it. Have you got any kind of sage words of advice or pro tips on, on trying to build that motivation back up when you are maybe down in the, down in the dumps a little bit and, and lacking the, the motivation to get back in the shop? Yeah, what what do you kind of do internally to sort of fire yourself back up? You know, I mean, honestly, a lot of the times I, I do find myself in the shop and I'll, I'll just make myself pick up the tools and get back to it. And sometimes it's just the worst feeling. It's like, I'll even tell myself, I just do not want to be here. I don't want to do this today. This sucks. Uh, and, and I say that to illustrate that it doesn't matter who you're watching. Anybody building a car feels that way at times, no matter what they tell you. Um, but I, I have also told everybody and promised them, if you pick up the tools, sometimes it might take picking up those tools for a couple of days in a row. Sometimes it might happen in a day. Sometimes it'll only take a few minutes, but you'll feel that inspiration come back and you'll feel that motivation come back. As soon as you make that first semblance of progress, you feel that dopamine hit again when it's like, hey, I got something done. What's the next thing on the list? It, it, it's a snowball effect. And before you know it, it's full steam ahead. And and I experience that on both small and large scales all the time. I haven't worked on the Ferrari uh, in about a week uh, at this point. It's been probably a week since I've gotten to work on it. I've been working on other projects and trying to get my BMW on the road and what have you. And so I'm feeling a little bit of that right now. Uh, you know, when... I get to the shop today, I'm going to have to kind of reorient myself and figure out, all right, where was I? What do I need to do? I don't know where to start right now. I don't even know if I like want to get started right now, but no, this project needs to get done. I want it to get done more than I want to not be here. So, all right, let's pick a job and let's knock it out. And so I'll probably 
make sure that I'm prepped to drop the engine back in tomorrow. I'll drop the engine in and get working towards firing it up for the first time. So it's just a matter of making yourself do it. You know, you've got to want to finish it more than you want to sit around and be upset that it's not finished. I think I'll add another thing to that as well from my own experiences that particularly in the earlier stages of a project and, and a bigger project that it can be impossible to kind of see the, the finish line because there's just this mountain of work between where you are and where you need to get to. And, and when you're faced with a, a mountain of tasks, that can be a little bit overwhelming. I always find that trying to break the project down into small bite-sized bits, that, that's key for me. Because then instead of a, 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 the overall project, which may be, as you say, maybe a year, it might be two years, I can look at a task that I can complete in a day or a week or maybe even a month. And you know, if I'm just looking at that one task, all of a sudden it's manageable. Uh, and then I've got that distinct kind of, hit of dopamine as you've mentioned when I've I've knocked that task off I've, I've ticked it off the list it's done I don't need to worry about that again and I can move on to the next task so I think for me breaking a, a big job down into micro tasks that that's kind of a, a really good way for for me to stay motivated and and I think that's something that that may be able to work for others as well oh no doubt I think I think breaking things down into small jobs is critical if you are only looking at the big picture, you're you're staring at trying to climb a mountain versus just taking your first step. Um, and and I have a I have a, a small notebook that I keep, and I make notes in it every day about what I think I'm going to try to accomplish the next day. I'll make kind of I'll outline my plans. All right, here's the things I think I'm going to knock out today, and I highlight them when I get them done, or I cross them out and take them over to the next page if I don't. Uh, and it really does help me keep track of, of what I'm doing. And I'll make notes about, oh, I need to make sure I remember to order, you know, this bushing or I need to order bolts in this length or, you know, what have you. I need to order fuel injectors so I have them next week when I want to put the fuel system together. Constantly making notes and then knowing that uh, I can go back to that notebook at any point and check exactly what the most up-to-date kind of things that I need to do are, to-do lists or shopping lists or what have you. I can go back at any point and see, did I order this? Did I make a note of this previously? What was I working on at this time? So on and so forth. So I have a, I have a notebook dedicated to the Ferrari build and then one dedicated to the Model A and so on and so forth. And I'm able to not only document, I think it'll be really cool to go back in the future and, and look at these notebooks, but I find them to be hugely helpful uh, in in breaking builds down, breaking jobs down, and seeing exactly what I need to work on. Um, you know, I mean, I can open it up, you know, right here, and I can see on February 16th, I made notes that I needed to buy the flywheel hardware. Uh, and then up next on the list was, you know, clutch install, install the transmission. Um, I needed to draw the battery box in CAD. Uh Sounds to me like maybe you're uh, being a bit hard on yourself, Mike. It sounds like you're uh, much better at planning than I am. That's uh, quite detailed. I, I guess I maybe that's I don't know. It's, I'm I'm sure to so plenty of people they'd hear that and say, "What are you talking about? You're not a planner." Um, I guess I try to stay organized with the build itself, but when it comes to planning, uh, in an overall sense, 
I know I'm bad at it because, because I've heard it plenty of times from my girlfriend. She's given me so much shit over the years about I'm a planner and you need to tell me what's going on. You can't just fly by the seat of your pants. I've, I've had business partners get upset with me because in a, in a life sense, I very much just take it day by day. I don't know what I'm doing a week from now, uh, let alone past that other than very specifically about cars. I know, I know what cars are on my docket and I know what I want to be building after, you know, the next one and what have you, but I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm good at planning cars, but not much else. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, look, Mike, it's been great to chat and we really want to see this 308 fire up for the first time. So I think it's probably important that we let you get back into the workshop. So we'll move on to wrapping this thing up. And we've got a few questions we like to ask all of our guests. The first of those is uh, what's next and in the future for you? I mean, obviously, you're still deep in this Ferrari build. Uh, when it's finished, is, is there something else on your uh, on your radar already? There is. I do have my next project already uh, in hand. Uh, it's in the shop. It's I, I bought the car, let's see, in August of last year. So I've had it for a minute now. Uh, I haven't told anybody what it is. Uh, I'm waiting. Uh, my promise to my YouTube audience is that once I can cross one project off the list, uh, I, then I will announce it. So I don't, you know, have, uh, you know, so to speak, too many irons in the fire. But um it's uh, as a hint, because I haven't given anybody any hints uh, at all previously. Uh, it's something all-wheel drive. First time okay. for an all-wheel drive. So I, I, I haven't had fun with all-wheel drive before, and I think that could be pretty fun. Um, so diving into that, uh, and I've got some pretty big plans for it. I'm pretty excited. I'm stockpiling parts for it already. I've got a full drive drive line to go into it, um, and I'm sending that off uh, to an engine builder here, uh, hopefully here in the next couple of weeks. Got suspension and wheels and bodywork and what have you all uh, all waiting. So I'm 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 looking forward to it. Exciting times. When are you expecting that project to kick off? Well, I have uh, my E36 project that I've had for 16 years now. I'm really close to wrapping it up. Tomorrow morning, uh, I have a video going live of my first drive in that car in about eight years. So I got it uh, on the road. All that's left is some small knickknacks and to put the interior back in it. And it's more or less done. So I, I think... Uh, if my audience is receptive and will watch a couple more episodes of me tinkering on a BMW, uh, we can cross that one off the list and we will move on to the new project. Perfect. All right, next question. Is there anything in terms of advice that you could give to a younger version of yourself or maybe our younger listeners uh, on this podcast, just given your career so far, the trajectory of your career, everything you've learned, ups and downs, maybe some of the pitfalls you've fallen into uh, in order to sort of fast track progress? Sure. Uh, I mean, the one the one tidbit I always say, like I said earlier, is I always try to tell myself if somebody else can do something, I can do it too. And I think that's so critical. Um, and I try to embrace that in in every aspect, whether it's about cars or not. Um, but following that, I, I think, you know, if I were going to give words of advice to myself previously, it would just be make sure you're following, uh, you know, your heart and your dreams. And I've done a really good job of that, but that's not without some, uh, very educational missteps. Uh, it's okay to take missteps and it's okay to fail when, as long as you learn from those failures and those missteps, um, and, and 
you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate I've been in a position to chase my dreams for this long. Uh, and I would encourage anybody else out there to, to do the same thing. You know, it, success is in your hands. Make sure you grab it. Absolutely. I think your point about failing there is, you know, no one likes to fail, obviously, and there's an aversion to it, but we do learn from our failures, or at least I, I'm hoping that, um, you know, that that's one of the things we need to take away from a failure is learning what went wrong so we can avoid it again. It's kind of a, a, a human way of, of learning. So I think, you know, failures are never fun in the moment, but it is a natural part of growing and, and learning a new skill set. So, you know, don't don't necessarily think that every failure is is bad or could be avoided. It is something that uh, we do uh, need to go through in order to to learn and progress. Last question for today, Mike. Uh, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, uh, where are they best to do so? Uh, the best place is, uh, of course, on YouTube. You can follow all of the builds. Uh, the YouTube channel is StanceWorks. Uh, and then if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm Mike underscore Stanceworks, or you can just follow the Stanceworks page. Uh, and that's about that's about all I, I keep up to date on. I, I try to keep my social media to a minimum since it's my job. <laughs> <laughs> Understand. Okay, we'll, we'll put uh, a couple of links to those in the show notes as well. Look, Mike, really great to chat there today. And uh, been, there's a, a minefield of information in there, some really great takeaways, I think, for, for those who are building their own cars. And, and I know a lot of people will appreciate the information and advice you've, you've given. Uh, really look forward to seeing the finished result with the 308 project and obviously uh, pretty excited to, to learn what this new uh, four-wheel drive project's all about. So we wish you all the best. Thanks for coming along. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.